On November 24th, 1971, the night before Thanksgiving, a man described in his mid-40s with dark sunglasses and an olive complexion boarded a flight from Portland, Oregon to Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. His $20 ticket was bought under the name Dan Cooper. Sitting in the rear of the plane, he handed a note to a flight attendant after takeoff. Miss, I have a bomb and would like you to sit by me. Now, 50 years ago this week, the mystery of D.B. Cooper still remains unsolved. Will they ever catch the perpetrator? Are they even close? You know I love a local story, and this one is especially close to home, like just a few miles down the road close. Today I'm going to tell you the story of Cleveland, Ohio's largest bank heist in the history of, well, Cleveland, and the fugitive who got away with it. From time to time, during the How Did We Miss That podcast, we may talk about details of crimes that some may find triggering or disturbing. Listener discretion is highly advised. did we miss that? Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of How Did We Miss That? I'm Christine. And I'm John. Welcome back. Welcome back. You're back. Yeah, it's this is a real episode, finally. Yeah. It's been a, it seems like it's been forever. I think it's only been two times. Yeah, and then we, I think we missed one in between. Hey, to all our fans, sorry. Yes, we're getting really Just busy. Just so busy and so many things going on. Yes. So I have a question for you. Yes. You said the story takes place just a few miles down the road, but we don't live in Cleveland. Oh, I'll get to that. I know that. Oh, okay. I have a question for you. Yeah. I think yours truly covered this guy. We did. But you're going to do something different, right? I'm going to I'm going to add to it because the story is timely in two different ways. One, it's almost Thanksgiving. Huzzah. Huzzah. And two, it's the 50th anniversary this week. 50 50 years ago. 50 wow. years. No one was alive back then. Nobody was alive back then. <laughs> All right. Well, I can't wait to hear um, how you make my story even better. Right. So you did a great job. You covered all of the information. But what we didn't go into is the suspects. That's right. We didn't. Right. And mm-hmm. there was also a, a little bit of um, sleuthing going on a few years ago, which we'll talk about in yes. just a minute. Yeah. But anyway, just a quick recap. The man calling himself Dan Cooper demanded $200,000 in cash plus four parachutes. He received them at Seattle Tacoma International Airport, where he released the 36 passengers and two flight attendants that were on the plane that he hijacked. The plane took off again at his direction, heading slowly to Reno, Nevada, at the low height of 10,000 feet. Somewhere apparently over southwestern Washington, Cooper lowered the aircraft's rear stairs and jumped out of the plane. Now, that wouldn't be, you know, anything exciting except for the fact that he was never found. Well, I'm sorry. That's something very exciting. Just your average Joe does not know how to jump out of a plane. And so I think what I covered when we did this was that he perhaps had some military knowledge and background? We, gonna- will, we will go into Oh, that. sorry. Okay. No, don't be sorry. That's yeah. correct. 
And that was part of the thinking of why the CIA might have been involved in this, because they hired him to do this. I think that's what I covered. It's been a while. I just feel like anyone jumping out of an airplane with $200,000 and four parachutes probably be caught on the ground once they got there. That's why it's exciting. Yes, yeah. he wasn't caught. Yeah. So. Um, a boy digging on a Columbia River beach in 1980, though, discovered three bundles of weathered $20 bills, which amounted to almost $6,000. An investigation of the serial numbers found to be D.B. Cooper's cash. Hmm. So that's kind of the recap of the story. Yeah. I'm not going to go too much into the details because you already did. Don't happen to know what episode that was, do you? I don't, but I'll look it up and I'll uh, okay. comment. If anyone wants Give to go back and second. listen to it. Yeah. All right. Well, between 1971 and 2016, so just as early as that, the FBI processed over a thousand and what they have in quotes, serious suspects, including assorted publicity seekers and deathbed confessors. Tonight, I'm going to discuss with you all 1,000 of these. I'm just kidding. I'm not. That's my new band name, <laughs> The Deathbed Confessors. Oh, that's a good yeah, one. I like that. It's kind of like Dashboard Confessional. There you go. Except Deathbed Yeah. Confessors. <laughs> Maybe it could be a Dashboard cover band. That'd be cool. <laughs> all right. All right. So the first one I'm going to talk to you guys about tonight is Kenneth Peter Christensen. In 2003... A Minnesota resident named Lyle Christensen watched a television documentary about the Cooper hijacking and became convinced that his late brother, Kenneth, was D.B. Cooper. Breaking news. Breaking news. This was covered by me in episode 41. 41. Of How Did We Miss That? So go back and give that a listen, as well as this one, and then, you know, write to the show and tell us who wore it better. Uh, no, don't well, do no, that. I'm not I'm sure the same information. I know. Anyway, if you'd like a different take on it or whatever, listen to episode 41, which is, you know, it was quite some time ago because this will be episode 55. So right. it's been a good, I just you know, mean, you weeks. covered the details of the crime. I did. I'm doing the suspects. You did a great job. I, I don't need I, to go back and cover that. Yeah. And I think I actually covered the conspiracy side of it, too. Yes, I believe that yeah. you did. Okay. All right. So. We're going to look at some of the evidence that led Lyle to suspect his brother, Kenneth. So Kenneth had enlisted in the army in 1944 and he was trained as a paratrooper. Even though the war had already ended, he did actually have an opportunity to make some occasional trips in the air while he was stationed in Japan. After leaving the army, he joined Nor Northwest Orient in 1954 as a mechanic in the South Pacific and subsequently became a flight attendant based in Seattle one whose responsibility was to handle any money on board the aircraft. Hmm. Interesting. We do have very similar stories here. You'll find you'll oh. see the connections when I get into mine. Okay. Yeah. Christensen was 45 years old at the time of the hijacking. He was also shorter than the eyewitness accounts. He was only 5 foot 8 and he weighed about 150 pounds and he was lighter skinned. That is a tiny man. It's a very tiny man. Yeah, 58 one what did you say 150? 150. Man. He did smoke, though, and he enjoyed bourbon, which I don't know if you mentioned, but that was a drink that Cooper requested while he was on the flight. Mm -hmm. was, yep. a, was a bourbon. Yeah. So those were some correlations there mm -hmm. that he did actually smoke. And uh, Cooper left some cigarette butts on the plane. So there we go. I feel like everybody smoked and drank bourbon back then, though. Yeah. That was kind, kind of, of a thing. thing. Yeah. Yeah. He was also left-handed. I don't know if you covered this. Did you cover this? I don't remember you covering this. I don't remember that either. So Maybe. they believe I don't know. they believe D.B. Cooper to be left-handed because 
of evidence photos and eyewitness accounts show his tie clip to be on the left, as if you were to put it on left-handed. That does sound familiar, but yeah. I may have just read that and not covered it. So yeah. they were using that as also like, oh, okay, this okay. guy's also left-handed. There you go. So that's interesting. So um, there was a flight attendant on board who told reporters that the photos of Christensen fit her memory of the hijacker's appearance more closely than those of other suspects that she had been shown. But at this time, she couldn't say like definitively it's that guy. Okay. Okay. So she said yeah. it fits. Mm-hmm. But she couldn't like conclusively say, yeah, yes, that's him. Right. So even more interesting is that Christensen reportedly had purchased a house with cash a few months after the hijacking. While dying of cancer in 1994, he told Lyle, there's something you should know, but I cannot tell you. Hmm. But Lyle never pressed his brother to explain. After Christensen's death, Family members discovered gold coins and a valuable stamp collection, along with over $200,000 in bank accounts. They also found a folder of Northwest Orient news clippings, which began about the time he was hired in the 1950s and stopped just before the date of the hijacking. Although the hijacking was by far the most momentous news event in the airline's history, Christensen continued to work part-time for the airline for many years after 1971, but apparently never clipped another Northwest news story. Hmm. Interesting. Yes, very. Sounds pretty legit, right? Yeah. Did Sounds he like also have any, uh, here? any art pieces from Isabella? <laughs> Isab- and a mail truck anywhere. <laughs> yeah. And all the other missing things we've covered. <laughs> Did he ever go to that airport? Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> what if all of these shows are all tied together? Oh, my Lord. Oh, my God. It's the same person. Yeah. It's aliens, all of it. <laughs> Anyway, well, so we just decided that this sounds pretty good. This sounds like a good lead, right? Yeah. Well, the FBI does not agree. Of course not. Why would they? (laughs) Well, apparently, it turns out that Christensen did not pay cash for his house that he bought after the hijacking. He actually had a mortgage on it. And I don't know why they included this, but it took him 17 years to pay off. It's interesting. Good. He had one of those uh, reverse mortgages. I guess so. (laughs) The same search also uncovered evidence that Christensen had sold off almost two dozen acres of land for $17,000 per acre in the mid-1990s, which is why he had so much money in his account at the time of his death. Lastly, the FBI has determined that the description of the hijacker doesn't sound enough like Christensen, and he seemed to have better flight training than what they expected from the actual D.B. Cooper. So that was actually something that they've been ruling out suspects for was they had experience jumping out of planes where it seemed like D.B. Cooper did not have experience doing this. He made like some pretty bad judgment calls, I guess. Yeah. All right. So the next next suspect on the list is Jack Caulfield. He was actually born Bryant Jack Caulfield. He was a con man, an ex-convict. And a purported government informant in 1972, he began claiming that he was Cooper and attempted to sell his story to a Hollywood production company. But he also claimed to be the chauffeur and friend of Abraham Lincoln's last known descendant. I've always heard that that was my my mom. Oh, right. She's made that claim. You know that, right? Yes, she is Abraham Lincoln's last known descendant. So he was the chauffeur of my mom? Apparently. Wow. Small world. I know, right? Crazy. Anyway, 
So his story is this. He said he landed near Mount Hood, about 50 miles southeast of Ariel, injuring himself and losing the ransom money in the process. Photos of Kofelt bear a resemblance to the composite drawings, although he was in his mid-50s in 1971. He was reportedly in Portland on the day of the hijacking and sustained leg injuries around that time, which were consistent with a skydiving mishap. Hmm. Kofelt's account was reviewed by the FBI, which concluded that it differed in several details from information that had not been made public and was therefore a fabrication. So that's why they do that. They keep specific details out to kind of help weed out the people that aren't really telling the truth. Yeah. Smart idea. It is. Very. Yes. All right. Third on the list is Lynn Doyle Cooper. L.D. Cooper was a leather worker and Korean War veteran and was identified as a suspect in July of 2011 by his niece, Marla Cooper. As an eight-year-old, she recalled Cooper and another uncle planning something which she says in quotes, very mischievous. Mm-hmm. Involving the use of, in quotes again, expensive walkie-talkies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> at her grandmother's house, house in Sisters, Oregon, 150 miles southeast of Portland. The next day, Flight 305 was hijacked, and though they were supposed to be turkey hunting, LD came home wearing a bloody shirt, which he said was because of a car accident. Later, she said her parents came to believe that LD Cooper was the hijacker. She also recalled that her uncle, who died in 1999, was obsessed with the Canadian comic book hero Dan Cooper. Yes. And had one of his comic books thumbtacked to his wall. Mm-hmm. He obviously knows that that's going to completely devalue the comic book. Uh, yeah, unless he, yes. We won't go into that. Oh. Like if it was in plastic and you pin the plastic, then mm, okay, you might be in good shape. Okay. Yeah. In August of 2011, New York Magazine published an alternative witness sketch reportedly based on a description by Flight 305 eyewitness Robert Gregory depicting horn-rimmed sunglasses, a russet-colored suit jacket with wide lapels, and marcelled hair. I believe that's how you say that. Actually, I actually had to look that up because I'm like, what is that? Some kind of hair product? No. So it's it was popular like in the 30s and 40s. Remember that like, people would have them like slicked down to their head, but then the wavy curl in it. Oh, yeah. You'd put like yeah. hot curlers in it to make it like wavy. Yeah. So that's what it is. Mm. This guy sounds like a sharp dressed man. Sharp dressed man. I like it. <laughs> anyway, it turns out that L.D. Cooper did have wavy hair that looked that way. The FBI has reported, though, that his DNA did not match the partial DNA profile obtained from the hijacker's tie. So remember, he left his clip-on tie? Yes. Yeah, so they've been able to get some DNA off of that. Anyway, didn't match. But they did acknowledge that there is no certainty that the hijacker was the source of the material that they got from the tie. Mm. I so think it doesn't our, necessarily mean if everyone heard our mascot there shaking his head, I think he agrees with that. Yeah. Yeah. He does. He, you know, he's been known to agree <clears throat> with the FBI quite yeah. often. Thanks, yeah. Flapjack. Thanks, Flapjack. There have been no further comments or investigations into this suspect. So our next suspect is actually really interesting. And there's like zero evidence to support that this guy was DB Cooper, but Can I pause for one sure. second? Sure. When did this happen again? I was the day before Thanksgiving in 1971, Mm. November 24th. Yeah. So I was going to say, I feel like the sketch that I've seen of D.B. Cooper looks like every guy in like 
late 60s, early 70s with the glasses sure. and the hair. Yeah. They couldn't have a, like a more generalized sketch. Right. So no well, wonder they have all these suspects. He seriously looks like you're just everyday guy from that time frame. Right. Interesting. Yeah. All right. All right. So this particular suspect, very interesting idea, is John List. I've heard that name before. Mm-hmm. So besides the fact that he was an accountant and a World War II and Korean War veteran, he murdered his wife. Oh. And teenage children and his 85-year-old, excuse me, not four, mother in Westfield, New Jersey, 15 days before the hijacking. Mm-hmm. He withdrew $200,000 from his mother's bank account and then disappeared. If you ever want to hear his story, it's all over the place. It's a pretty famous murder. Yeah. No wonder Check I've heard out. the name before. All my favorites have covered it. Yeah. Which is why I have not covered it. Oh, there you go. <laughs> because you have not missed it. I did not miss it. Yeah. Neither has anyone else. Heard it many a time. Yeah. Yes. So anyway, go check it out if you want to know. Check it out. So he actually came to the attention of the Cooper Task Force due to the timing of his disappearance, multiple matches to the hijacker's description, and the reasoning that we he would have nothing to lose after killing his entire family. After his capture in 1989, List admitted to murdering his family, but denied any involvement in the Cooper hijacking. Although his name continues to appear in Cooper articles and documentaries, no substantial evidence implicates him, and the FBI no longer considers him a suspect. Yeah, I don't, there's like nothing. Which yeah. <laughs> is really interesting. Just because he was a bad guy around the same time? Well, he just so happened to disappear, like right at yeah. that time. Come on. And I mean, I guess I get what they're saying, like, oh, he'd have nothing to lose, like, might as well just go for it. But there's millions of people in the world, though, that just disappear and whatever. Like, I don't know. Yeah, right. Not buying it. All right. Richard McCoy Jr. is our next suspect. McCoy was an Army veteran who served two tours of duty in Vietnam, first as a demolition expert and later with the Green Berets as a helicopter pilot. After his military service, he became a warrant officer in the Utah National Guard and an avid recreational skydiver, hoping to become a Utah state trooper. Do they skydive a lot in the state trooper? Uh, no, not to my knowledge. They don't skydive at all. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I guess that doesn't really tie into it. Then. Yeah, that's generally not their attack plan is to attack from the air when they're conducting an arrest yeah. for drunk driving Strange. on the highway or something. Yeah. Odd. All right. Well, on April 7th of 1972, McCoy staged the best known of the so-called copycat hijackings. He boarded United Airlines Flight 855, which also happened to be a Boeing 727 with back stairs. Just like D.B. Cooper's. So we boarded it in Denver, Colorado, brandishing what later provided to be, I'm sorry, proof, not provided, to be a paperweight resembling a hand grenade and an unloaded handgun. He demanded four parachutes and $500,000. Getting a little bit more greedy now, I guess. After delivery of the money and parachutes at San Francisco International Airport, McCoy ordered the aircraft back into the sky and bailed out over Provo, Utah, leaving behind his handwritten hijacking instructions and his fingerprints on a magazine he had been reading. So didn't look like he thought it out as well as he thought he did. He was arrested on April 9th with the ransom cash in his possession and after trial and conviction received a 45-year sentence. Two years later, he escaped from Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary with several accomplices by crashing a garbage truck through the main gate. Mm-hmm. That works. Yeah. 
Tracked down three months later in Virginia Beach, McCoy was killed in a shootout with FBI agents. In their 1999, sorry, 91 book, D.B. Cooper, The Real McCoy, parole officer Bernie Rhodes and former FBI agent Russell Calamay asserted that they had identified McCoy as Cooper. They cited obvious similarities in the two hijackings, claims by McCoy's family that the tie and mother of pearl clip left on the plane belonged to McCoy, and McCoy's own refusal to admit or deny that he was Cooper. Although there is no doubt that he committed the Denver hijacking, the FBI does not consider him a suspect in the Cooper case because of his mismatches in age and description, a level of skydiving skill well above that to be possessed by the hijacker. So it's another thing I keep mm-hmm. I keep hearing as a way to eliminate people is that they actually had skills as a <laughs> <laughs> yeah as a skydiver yeah and credible credible evidence that McCoy was in Las Vegas on the day of the Portland hijacking. And at home in Utah the day after having Thanksgiving dinner with his family. Hmm. So when I was reading that, I was like, oh, this is it. This is the guy. And then, no. Sheridan Peterson. I like that name, Sheridan Peterson. Sounds like a, an official lawyer or something. Yeah. Well, he served in the U.S. Marine Corps during World War II and was later employed as a technical editor at Boeing based in Seattle. Investigators took an interest in Peterson as a suspect soon after the skyjacking because of his experience as a smoke jumper and love of taking physical risks, as well as his similar appearance and age. Peterson often teased the media about whether he was really D.B. Cooper. Entrepreneur Eric Eulis, which is, interestingly enough, just last August, he commissioned some workers to start digging near the Columbia River where they found Mm. the money just this last August. Wow. Yes. And since I haven't heard an update, I'm going to assume they didn't find anything. Right. Yeah. Since we haven't heard. Yeah. (laughs) Otherwise. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, he has actually spent years investigating the crime and said he is 98% convinced that Peterson was Cooper. But when pressed by FBI agents, Peterson insisted he was in Nepal at the time of the skyjacking. He died actually this year in 2021. Oh. That's interesting. This guy is actually really famous for being an expert in this case. Mm -hmm. He's still investigating and trying to find clues. And he thinks this guy is it. Which I thought was interesting. Curious. I think this next suspect is the most famous of the ones that I've heard of. When I heard of the suspect list, I remember this name. Robert Rackstraw. Mm -hmm. He was a retired pilot and an ex-convict who served on an army helicopter crew and other units during the Vietnam War. He came to the attention of the Cooper Task Force in February of 1978, and he was arrested in Iran and deported to the U.S. several months later. While released on bail, Rackstra attempted to fake his own death by radioing a false mayday call and telling controllers that he was bailing out of a rented plane over Monterey Bay. Police later arrested him in Fullerton, California, on additional charges. The plane he claimed to have ditched was found repainted in a nearby hangar, Cooper investigators noted his physical resemblance to Cooper and his military parachute training and criminal record, but they eliminated him as a suspect in 1979 after finding no evidence at all that he was involved. (laughs) In 2016, Rockstraught reemerged as a suspect in a history program. On September 8th, 2016, Thomas J. Colbert, the author of the book, and attorney Mark Zaid, filed a lawsuit to compel the FBI to release its Cooper case under the Freedom of Information Act. Mm -hmm. 
The suit alleges that the FBI suspended active investigation of the Cooper case in order to undermine the theory that the Rackstraw, I'm sorry, that Rackstraw, not the Rackstraw, is D.B. Cooper, so as to prevent embarrassment for the Bureau's failure to develop evidence sufficient to prosecute him for the crime. So basically they're saying, he's it, they're covering it up because the FBI doesn't want to look stupid. Yeah, sounds about right. That's basically what they're trying to say. Yeah. In January of 2018, Tom and Donna Colbert reported that they had a confession letter originally written in December 1971 containing codes that matched three units Rockstar was a part of while in the Army. They said the FBI refused to acknowledge their findings because it would have to admit amateur sleuths had cracked a case that the Bureau could not. On the flight 305, attendants reportedly did not find any similarities between photos of Rockstraw from the 1970s and a recollection of Cooper's appearance. Rockstraw has been noted as saying that their claims are a bunch of baloney, <laughs> using other words, of course. Yeah. And the FBI declined further comment. Of course they did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I feel like if the actual person is like, no, this is done. Didn't that know. happen in something else recently where sleuths, I love sleuths? that word. Sleuths? They solve something and the FBI is like, yeah, not not so sure. Oh, it's the Zodiac. Yeah. They were like, eh, yes. you know, cool story, bro, but not so sure. Yeah. I think they do that a lot because they, like you said, they don't want to be prove, proven wrong or like they can't, they can't solve it and other people can. Right. Yeah. All right. Last two. <clears throat> Apparently the next uh, suspect is Will Smith. <laughs> like, welcome to Miami? Yeah. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Just. William J. Smith. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Will Smith. Hey, the Fresh Prince <laughs> I'm starting of Bel-Air. rumor here. Yeah. Starting rumors. I like it. In November of 2018, the Oregonian published an article proposing William J. Smith of Bloomfield, New Jersey, as a suspect. The article was based on research conducted by an Army data analyst who sent his findings to the FBI in mid-2018. Smith, a New Jersey native, was a World War II veteran After high school, he enlisted in the Navy and volunteered for combat aircrew training. After his discharge, he worked for the Lehigh Valley Railroad and was affected by the Penn Central Transportation Company bankruptcy in 1970. So basically, they were saying he was 43 at the time of the hijacking. In his high school yearbook, oddly enough, a list of alumni killed in World War II lists an Ira Daniel Cooper. Ooh possibly where he could have gotten the name from yeah the analyst claimed that smith's naval aviation experience would have given him knowledge of planes and parachutes and his railroad experience would have helped him find railroad tracks and hop on a train to escape the area after landing that was Hmm. interesting that is very interesting yeah case here last one and the one i actually thought was kind of kind of interesting kind of credible is Dwayne weber Yes. This sounds familiar, too. Dwayne Weber? Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. He was a World War II Army veteran who served time in at least six prisons from 1945 to 1968 for burglary and forgery. He was proposed as a suspect by his widow, based primarily on a deathbed confession. Three days before he died in 1995, Weber told his wife, Joe, I am Dan Cooper. The name meant nothing to her, she said. But months later, a friend told her of its significance in the hijacking. She went to her local library to research D.B. Cooper, found Max Gunther's book, and discovered notations in the margins in her husband's handwriting. Ooh. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Joe then recalled in retrospect that Weber once had a nightmare during which he talked in his sleep about jumping from a plane, leaving his fingerprints on the aft stairs. That means the back stairs. Yeah, thanks. For people who don't know. (laughs) He also reportedly told her that an old knee injury had been incurred by jumping out of a plane. Like the hijacker, Weber drank bourbon and chain smoked. Other circumstantial evidence included a 1979 trip to Seattle and the Columbia River, during which Weber took a walk alone along the riverbank in the Tinabar area. Four months later, Brian Ingram made his ransom cash discovery in the same area. FBI investigators have said he does fit the physical description and does have the criminal background that match their profile, but they don't believe that Weber was D.B. Cooper. The FBI eliminated Weber as an active suspect in July 1998 when his fingerprints did not match any of those processed on the hijacked plane. Mm. And no other direct evidence could be found to implicate him. Later, his DNA also failed to match the samples recovered from Cooper's tie. But like I've already mentioned, the FBI has said they can't be sure the material in the tie came from Cooper. I feel like he's he's a good suspect. That is a good one. Mm-hmm. Although the way this is going, I drink bourbon. So am I a suspect? Honey. Aside from the fact that I wasn't you alive back then. You weren't even alive, my friend. <clears throat> you also don't fit the description, nor do you chain smoke. That you know of, anyway. I could be sneaking outside. Anyway, of- but I don't know. I feel like we could be getting close here with all these 40, 50-year-old cases being solved with yes. familial DNA. Yeah. I feel like, mm-hmm. We could be getting close, but the guy's probably dead. There. Well, sure. Just like my We're going to run dead. into quite a lot. Here. Yeah. But yeah, so that's my story. That's my continuation. The celebration of celebration. I don't know if that's the right word for that, but <laughs> 50 years of DB Cooper. Yes. Huzzah. 50 years. If I had a glass right now, I'd toast my vodka and break it. Huzzah. Okay. All right. You you you, you Yep. All right, you pointed out that we don't live in Cleveland. We do not. Thank you. I am aware. You just said a few miles down the road. Yeah, I know. It's it's called, I don't want to bury the lead. I, I want to build some suspense. Okay. So people are excited to get to this part of the, the program. Okay? Okay. All right. 20-year-old Theodore John Conrad, three names, red flag, <laughs> went to work on a nice summer day in July of 1969. Theodore worked at the Society National Bank headquarters in cleveland where he was a cash vault teller i would also like to point out oddly enough he has three first names well that's a big red flag yeah well he didn't kill anybody to my knowledge so maybe (laughs) maybe not i don't know his job involved packaging money that would be delivered to other society branches around town it was a job that only trusted employees were given like you would imagine and by all accounts theodore was that all-american boy with impeccable character and trust, which was, you know, kind of rare for a 20-year-old in 1969. Good old Teddy John. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, all at their peak. And being a 20-year-old, you I mean, you're right there in the middle of that. But this guy was clean cut, all-American, good character. He said, hey, we're going to put you in charge of packaging the money, which had like little supervision and all this other stuff. Well, they made a mistake. Mm-hmm. Because on Friday, July 11th, 1969, to be exact... Conrad went to the vault and stuffed $215,000 in cash. That's equivalent to about $1.5 million nowadays. Nice. Into a go paper big or go bag home. and walked off with it. 
The loss was discovered the following Monday, giving him a two-day head start to hide and run away. You see, there was very little security at the bank, and Conrad had never been fingerprinted as a condition of employment. And, you know, given that fact, I highly doubt that there were, like, big-time background checks back then, like we all go through now. Right. He probably just got hired and said, hey, this kid looks good. <laughs> Let's put him in charge of all this money. Well, he decided to put it in a bag and leave with it. Immediately after his disappearance was discovered on that Monday, a warrant was issued for his arrest on charges of embezzlement and misappropriation of funds. In September of 1969, Conrad was indicted in federal court on charges of embezzlement and making a false entry into the records of the bank, but they still didn't know where he was. How do you charge someone who's not there? I don't know. That's a great question. That's interesting. Prior to the theft, Conrad had been obsessed with the 1968 film, The Thomas Crown Affair. Do you know this movie? I do. There was a remake with Pierce Brosnan. Well, this one that he liked because the, he, Pierce Brosnan wasn't around then. Right. Well, Agreed. he might have been around, but he wasn't acting in movies. This one starred Steve McQueen, who is a millionaire bank robber. Right. As you know, Conrad, in quote, saw it more than half a dozen times and bragged to his friends about how easy it would be to take money from the bank he worked at. And even told them he planned to do so. Well, that was dumb. In 1969, Conrad confessed to his role in the robbery in a letter to his girlfriend and expressed regret for the crime. But they still couldn't find him. Mm -hmm. Conrad first went to Washington, D.C. after the theft before moving. I'm sorry. He first went to Washington, D.C. after the theft, and then he moved to Los Angeles. And in 1970, he settled in Massachusetts. Wow. After moving to Massachusetts, Conrad assumed the name of Thomas Randell. He married in 1982, and the couple had a daughter. He worked as a golf pro at the Pembroke County or Pembroke Country Club, which Pembroke's down south mm -hmm. by Plymouth, sort of north of sure. Plymouth. <clears throat> and he rose to manager there and was employed for 40 years by a luxury car dealership in Woburn eventually. Whoa. We know where Woburn is, right? We sure do. He was well liked by the local police and led a law-abiding life. This and the lack of fingerprints made it impossible to hunt for him. Well, yeah. While Conrad raised his family here in good old Mass, law enforcement was hunting unsuccessfully for him. Agents from all FBI field offices joined in the search, compiling notes and documentation that filled over 20 binders. Whoa. That's a lot of binders. The search for Conrad spanned over 52 years, and investigators followed leads that took them to D.C., Inglewood, California, West Texas, Oregon, and Honolulu. All over the place. In recent years, I he was, think they just wanted vacation. Yeah, maybe those are all nice places. Yeah. I don't know about Inglewood, but. Yeah, well, it's close enough to LA. In recent years, he was featured on the true crime television programs, America's Most Wanted and Unsolved Mysteries. What? How did we miss that? I don't watch those shows. I do watch Unsolved you Mysteries, yeah. but I watched a lot of them, so I probably just. The hunt for Conrad went on for so long that one of the deputy U.S. marshals involved in the original investigation, a man by the name of John K. Elliott, was succeeded on the case by his son, Peter J. Elliott. I always Whoa. find that's weird when people follow in the footsteps of their dad. Unless it's like a family business. It's like, oh, my dad was a marshal. I'm going to go be a marshal, too. It's weird, right? Why is that? No. Like, Do you see Jacob being a, you know, a security guy someday? But that's just not his thing. Yeah, that's true. Peter J. Elliott became the U.S. Marshal of the Northern District of Ohio in 2003. When John Elliott retired in 1990 and never stopped hunting for Conrad, 
Unfortunately, John died in March of 2020. So Peter's trying to, you know, avenge this crime that his dad worked so long on. Right. Well, the case remained cold until November of 2021. When Peter Elliott finally determined that Conrad had been living had been living as Randell in, are you ready? Mm-hmm. Linfield, Massachusetts. What? When I said that's like right down the road, that's like right down the road. Right down the road. Like literally, if we we could probably throw a rock to Linfield. I don't think we throw. That's a little far. That's a stretch. Yeah, um, Linfield is about sixteen miles north of Boston. Conrad had died of lung cancer on May eighteenth of twenty twenty one. And on his deathbed, he confessed his real identity. Deathbed confessional. He felt really bad. (laughs) Yeah, he did. Elliot was tipped off to Conrad's whereabouts by an obituary for Randell, which listed his birth date as July 10th, 1947, when Conrad's real birth date was July 10th, 1949. Mm. His parents' first names in the obituary, Edward and Ruthabeth, Ruthabeth, you and can't college. get away from a name like that. I know. And college, New England College. I don't even know there was a New England College. Have you heard of this? Where's mm. New England College? Were the same as Conrad's, and his mother's maiden name of Kruger was the same as well. Conrad's signature obtained by investigators from a college application was also highly similar to Randell's. His family won't be charged for not alerting authorities to his confession because they had no idea about him. Also, and like, he's people on his say deathbed. some crazy things when they're dying. That is true. So how did Elliot do this, right? Over the course of his father's career, Elliot said that um, in Cleveland from 1969 until his retirement in 1990, he never stopped searching for Conrad and always wanted closure up until his death in 2020. So Elliot, when he took over, the younger Elliot unearthed uh, documents that his father had collected from Conrad's college days. All these things, like I mentioned, the signature and all that helped lead him to Randell and ultimately decide this was him, plus the deathbed confession. Elliot Jr. says, I hope my father is resting a little easier today knowing his investigation and his United States Marshal Service brought closure to this decades-long mystery. Everything in real life doesn't always end like the movies. Mm -hmm. Very fierce. Charges of embezzlement and falsifying bank records remain against Conrad in U.S. District Court in Cleveland, but will soon be dropped. Conrad was quiet. This is another quote from neighbors and friends. Conrad was quiet, he told, um, they told Cleveland.com. He was friendly and he was well known in the community. He just wasn't who he said he was. So I've got a lesson for everyone here, and I think this story serves as a valuable lesson. Okay. You can't really trust anyone, right? I know you don't like that. You're rolling your eyes over there. If only people could see your, your face. Why are you rolling your eyes? I'm not rolling them. Why are you doing that look? We just have very different philosophies. He didn't hurt anybody in the end as the new person. Didn't hurt anybody. Yeah. Lived a nice life. Had a nice family. Well, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Everyone is capable of secrets, lies, etc. Everyone you meet... You should respond and approach with caution at first. And <laughs> okay. it's not creepy at all to look into someone's history. It's creepy. The popular Netflix show, You, paints researching people and social media stalking, in quotes, in a bad light. Because let's just face it, Joe Goldberg, he's a creeper and he uses the stalking to kill people and do bad things. Okay. With that said, using the internet to search about your neighbors, coworkers, friends, your kids' teachers... Not necessarily a bad thing, as long as you don't use the information to kill them. Because you never know who could be next door. That's true. They could be Cleveland's largest bank heister ever. Is that a word? Heister? 
Heistermeyer. I don't know. Heistermeister. Heistmeister. <laughs> That's my story. Of like our, our neighbor in Linfield. Of our neighbor that we did not know. All this time was a bank robber. That's crazy. Unbelievable, right? Unbelievable. But I mean, it just goes to show you the lady next door could be have some, you know, tainted past of crime and death and whatever. And we just know her as the lady next door. Oh, Joan. <laughs> I mean, she was about to kill me when I blew the leaves on her yard. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yes, I do so know what you're saying. The lesson from my story, don't trust anyone. All right. That reminded me, I just listened to a podcast on uh, John Benet Ramsey. And uh, one of the lead investigators had binders and binders and binders full of information on suspects. And his family has continued to investigate, which is really interesting. And I feel like they're really close. Really, really close. Nice. So that would be great to know the answer to that one. Speaking of other podcasts, real quick, if I may. Sure. To all of our fans out there, if you want to know what we do when we're not researching crime and talking about it on a podcast, we're having sex. And when we're not having sex or doing crime, we're talking about sex on our new podcast. Oh, am I supposed to say it? Yeah. Sorry, coming together. Coming together. So check that out as well if you like the sound of our voices and you want to hear something a lot different than what we're doing here. A lot. Based on the looks I'm getting, though, I might be murdered and then our worlds will, will collide. Yes, worlds but yes, will collide. Do check it out. Coming together, common spelling on coming. We're not that dirty. <laughs> C-O-M-I-N-G, together. <laughs> okay thank you and if you want any more information on these cases please make sure to follow us on social media at how did we miss that and until next week keep your head up and look out for each other 